Good morning, and we're going to be back in Mark's Gospel this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bible, and uh, as always, your cup of joe. We're going to go ahead and be in Mark chapter 2 and pick up where we left off last time. Uh, last time we were together, Jesus both forgave and then healed a paralytic, demonstrating his power and authority over sin and sickness, of course. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, anybody who was present at that, including just the common folks who were there watching, were amazed at this. and They glorified God, saying no one had ever seen anything like this. Well, we don't know time-wise how much time passes between verses 12 and 13, but Mark continues the story here now in verse 13 when it says, Then he went out again by the sea, or the Sea of Galilee, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. Uh, we don't know what he taught. Like in verse 2 of chapter 2, where he preached the word to them, here he taught them. Mark doesn't really spend any time explaining what he taught them, uh, which is you know, obviously, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We chose not to, he chose not to say, but uh, I would love to have heard what he's teaching in these things, these situations. But anyway, he taught them. And as he passed by, verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they, uh, there were many. And they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees uh, saw, uh, saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats with and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we now have the calling of Levi, whose name is also Matthew, as it's recorded in Matthew's own gospel. And that's who we're talking about here is Matthew, the writer of the uh, what is traditionally the first gospel in your New Testament. Uh, and so uh, Matthew here is an interesting character because he is somebody who is introduced to us as a tax collector. We don't see anywhere else where Jesus meets him prior to this uh, moment. Of course, Jesus fame is starting to grow through his uh, miraculous healings, the teaching with authority and such. Uh, he has cleansed uh, a leper. He has healed a paralytic and given him his walking and he's uh, given the ability to, to walk again and has forgiven his sin. And so the things that Jesus is saying and doing are becoming well known. And Matthew no doubt has heard about some of these things, but there's no actual record of them meeting prior to this moment. And so as Jesus is teaching in that area around the Sea of Galilee, he comes across Matthew sitting in the tax office, uh, which either speaks of an idea of him being on sort of a road area where his people would pass through this area, they would pay a tax to go through. I'm from Chicago, I'm very familiar with this whole idea. We call it highway robbery because they hold you up and take your money. Anyway, so, uh, so Levi is one of those. Now he's either in that capacity or maybe there's He's collecting taxes on those who are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Whatever the case is, he's a tax collector, which puts him in an interesting position. Uh, and he's sort of a person without a country in a way because he is Jewish. Matter of fact, he's named Levi, which is the priestly line uh, in Israel. That doesn't mean he necessarily was of the tribe of Levi, although he may have been. Uh, you know, names meaning things back in those days. They still do sometimes. People name their kids after you know, with specific reasons in mind, but that was certainly true in biblical times. Uh, it may very well be that his parents had high aspirations for him. Uh, Levi spoke again of that line of priests in Israel, and so they may have had high hopes for him. 
If he was a member of the house of Levi, the lineage, then maybe as a child they had hoped he might go into that service or something. But if he wasn't, just even naming him that speaks of kind of a high regard as one who would uh, ultimately be responsible for drawing people to God and, and, and representing them and such. So it's a wonderful name. And um, although it's interesting, it's a name that he doesn't use of himself in his own gospel. He only refers to himself as Matthew in his own gospel. Now, Matthew means gift of God. So I think there's a wonderful irony here. Uh, Levi, uh, the tax collector, uh, somebody who was taking taxes from people, later on becomes known as the gift from God or a gift of God, someone who is associated with the idea of having been given. Uh, tax collecting in those times, I guess I should explain too, uh, was on the one hand as unpopular uh, as it is today. Uh, no one looks forward to tax time and that kind of thing. But what made it worse in that time and in specific for Levi or Matthew is that as a Jew, he was working for the Roman, uh, Herod Antipas, he was working for Rome, collecting taxes from his own people. So essentially he was working for what many in Israel would consider the enemy. And on top of that, tax collectors generally made their living not only by collecting taxes, but by collecting more than was expected, and they would become typically quite rich by extorting the people. Uh, that's why when people came to John the Baptist and there were tax collectors there and said, what should we do? He said, don't collect more than is due. Well, that was because the practice was to do to collect more than was due. Uh, and so Matthew is one of these. Uh, we don't, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was dishonest or particularly wicked in that way. But if he was like any other tax collector, and there's no reason to think he wasn't, then his way of life was something that put him at odds with his own people. Now, being Jewish, he also was not really at home with the Romans either because he wasn't one of them. And so he's sort of an island. And that probably, you know, had, uh, you know, probably formed and informed his personality and his character. So when Jesus calls him, it's really kind of a special thing because he's the last person that you would uh, want to put on your ministry team, somebody who's unpopular among his own people and the people he works for and is someone who likely has been making a living by extorting his own people. Uh, he's not the kind of person that you would generally have singled down and said, yes, this is somebody who's going to become a representative of Jesus. Um, now, that being said, I think there is something, again, quite special about that. Um, if Jesus would call Matthew, very unlikely, totally not the kind of candidate that you would handpick, but he did. And I think that gives tremendous hope to anyone else, to any other sinner. Matter of fact, he's considered among that class of tax collectors and sinners when Jesus goes to his home for a meal right after this. Um, <clears throat> Levi, who, by the way, when Jesus calls him, leaves his tax collecting behind. He gets up and leaves and goes and follows Jesus. And so he essentially, it would appear, kind of quits his job and just begins to follow Jesus. Well, that's a lot to give up. Remember, as a tax collector, you generally got pretty wealthy by extorting the people. Well, when you stop doing that, you know, your, your gravy train has been cut off now. You know, you're not really maybe going to be living at that status anymore. So it cost Matthew something. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, he may have been the most well-off financially because of his position as a tax collector. And so it likely cost Matthew a lot to follow Jesus. Uh, later on, when Jesus would say to count the cost when you follow him, that's something that Matthew, no doubt, was very familiar with. Uh, so Matthew later on then, or, you know, soon after, uh, invites Jesus and the disciples over uh, to his house, and there are uh, tax collectors and sinners there, and the Pharisees and scribes who ultimately uh, are following Jesus around trying to figure him out. 
uh, are now thrown for a loop with this because Jesus is eating with people that the scribes and Pharisees would never deign to eat with, to, would never associate with. As a matter of fact, they're upset with Jesus in a way and confused by him because he's not a separatist like they are in regard to who he associates with. <clears throat> now, it is significant and telling of much of the rest of the gospel story uh, who Jesus hangs out with. He spends his time with the common people, the average, ordinary, everyday people. Uh, he has confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees and other leaders, but he doesn't uh, really, he's not really part of their group. He's always seen with those who are lowly, those who are the outcasts, the offscouring of Israel and that. As a matter of fact, even the terminology, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collector speaks of a, of a profession that is looked down upon by people who are righteous and holy and such because it, it involved essentially, you know, raking people over the coals for their money. Uh, thuggery and that kind of thing. And, and calling someone a sinner wasn't just a theological obvious truth that people are sinners, but they were referring to people as a low class of person. Uh, they were people who weren't particularly adept at keeping the law. They were people that were common and ordinary and not holy and pious like the Pharisees were, who, <clears throat> who as Jesus would indict them for, would be very cautious and careful about making sure they tithe exactly a certain amount of every little seed that they had and everything, but yet they were so completely oblivious to their hypocrisy and everything. Well, they were, they were, these were the holy and pious people, uh, and then the sinners and tax collectors were considered the low-class people, those who were essentially filthy sinners kind of a thing. And the fact that Jesus not only associated with them, but actually ate with them was a huge deal. Uh, if you're not familiar with customs in that part of the world, to eat with somebody was to really enjoy fellowship with them or oneness with them. And to do this with tax collectors and sinners was just absolutely a shocking thing for the Pharisees and scribes to witness. And they asked his disciples about it. How, why is he doing this? How can he possibly be okay with this? Uh, and Jesus hearing their thought, or not hearing their thoughts, but hearing them talk about this. Previously, he just knew their thoughts. Here, he's listening, and he hears them talking about this, asking the disciples about this. And he very, very uh, importantly says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, there's a tremendous irony in this statement, because Clearly, what he's talking about here when he says the righteous or who are well, <clears throat> the implication is <clears throat> that he's referring to the Pharisees and scribes. But he's not implying that they actually are well or righteous. He says, I've not called the righteous but sinners. I've not called the well but the sick. The irony in this is that Jesus was not classifying them as though they were actually different. He was simply referring to them in the way that they saw themselves. The truth of the matter is, is that since Jesus came for sinners and not the well, not the righteous, means that if he had come for the righteous, he'd have come for nobody. Paul very clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, Isaiah would say, none righteous, no, not one. And so there is this, there is this biblical understanding that there is nobody who's right. All of us are guilty under sin. But from the Pharisees' perspective, they believed that they were righteous because of the way that they lived. They thought their efforts and their works are what justified them before God. Jesus here is making sure they understand that that's not the case. And he's using this ironic sort of a statement to help them understand like, okay, well, if you're either saying you didn't come for us 
or you're saying we're not righteous. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was saying in, in, those, uh, in that sentiment. In other words, he came for sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes just needed to understand that that's the class that they were in, even though they were so quick to act as though they weren't. Jesus would later tell a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee uh, uh, who, uh, or was it a priest maybe, but they were walking up the temple steps. And um, the Pharisee, uh, looking at the tax collectors, uh, prayed to himself, it says, uh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. I, I tithe and I give and all these kinds of things. And Jesus referred to the tax collector and said, uh, referring to the tax collector, said that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, have mercy, God, upon me, a sinner. And he, Jesus obviously uh, is making the point that it's the tax collector who walked away justified that day. In other words, his heart was in the right place. He acknowledged and recognized that if there was any way to be righteous at all, it was going to depend entirely upon God's mercy and God's grace. And we see, of course, that message being played out throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I would even suggest, if we understand Paul and Galatians properly, uh, that grace has been the means by which God has been saving people literally from the beginning even during the times of the law, because Paul himself, a Pharisee who knows the law, would go on to say that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. <clears throat> so Jesus here makes this point, and this becomes something really foundational to his ministry. As he goes among the common people, it's not that they're sinners and the Pharisees and scribes aren't, it's just that they have, they have no misconceptions about themselves. They know they're sinners. And the fact that they are being embraced by the Savior is something that throws the Pharisees and scribes off, but should be something very instructive to you and I. Um, we would do well not to look down upon anybody. Because after all, as has been said, we're just beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Every one of us uh, is a sinner that is saved by grace if in fact we have been saved, if we've put our trust in Jesus. If we're saved, it's only by his mercy and grace. Matthew is a tremendous example of this. As a matter of fact, Matthew, having been received by Jesus himself, now goes and invites all of his friends and, and the class of people that he hangs with. And they all come and they listen to Jesus and they sit with him and he eats with them and enjoys fellowship with them. Jesus is truly the friend of sinners. May it be so of us as well. That being said, uh, as always, I would invite you as we bring this to a close to consider where you are. Uh, if you're watching this and you've never put your trust in Jesus, you're just like Matthew. One day, you were doing your own thing. You were uh, a sinner. Uh, you were somebody who was doing things that were an offense to people. Uh, you were an offense. To, you're an offense to people. <clears throat> but Jesus has come to draw you into fellowship with him, to break down the wall of separation, to invite you in to dine at the table, as it were. Whereas once you were somebody outcast, now you're someone he wants to draw near. And we do this by faith. We do this by putting our trust in the one who came to pay for our sins once and for all. Again, by the works of the flesh shall no, fle no flesh be justified, or by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So our good deeds don't get us there. We can't be good enough to offset all the bad we've done. As a matter of fact, Paul would again say in Galatians 2, he said if that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died for nothing, or by the works of the law. If we could keep it, then Jesus had no reason to come. The implication is that we can't. And so we do, we do well to be like the tax collectors and sinners and to recognize that and acknowledge it and welcome Jesus in because he's the only means by which we're made right with God. They came to know it. 
And here's an opportunity for you to come to know it. If you're ready now to receive Jesus, as we often give an opportunity in our times together, let me go ahead and pray and invite you to pray with me. And then reach out to me through the comments or emails from <clears throat> our website at calvarychapel.com or my own blog at parsonspad.com. Reach out and let me know so that we can get you a Bible and help you plug into a local church where you can grow. I invite you to come out and visit us if you're nearby. Certainly watch these podcasts as we're going through the Word of God together, and that's a healthy thing for believers to do. And so let me pray and invite you now to, to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you for stories like this of people like Matthew and um, and how, Lord, on, on one minute they were uh, counted among the outcasts in Israel, but at the same time you sought him out, came to him and called him, and ultimately he came to believe. And not only did he believe, but he went on to write the gospel. He went on to become a follower of Jesus in, in, in that close group of apostles. Father, we thank you that you don't just see us for what we are, but ultimately you see us for what you turn us into. And as you redeem us, as you wash us clean and make us new, as we become really just the recipients of that beautiful and glorious grace, Father, you turn us into something we could never have hoped to be, not only your children, but even servants who are able to go on and do things that matter for you and for eternity. And so, Father, we want you to take hold of our lives, grab a firm hold of who we are, and help us to be all of that. And Father, for those who've never put their trust in Jesus, have never taken that first step like Matthew did that day, I want to pray for them right now. And I invite you, by the way, now to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I am every bit the sinner that we just read about in your word. But I also believe that like them, by putting my trust in you, I can be saved. And I can be redeemed. I can be bought and paid for. And I can be made new. And so I put my trust in Jesus, who died for my sins on the cross, and he rose again the third day from the dead. There's life beyond the grave, and I want to live life for you now as I make my way toward that day. Thank you for loving me and for setting me free from the penalty of my sin. Now help me to follow you all the days of my life until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. God's grace is truly amazing. And if you receive Jesus just then, uh, now becomes the opportunity of a lifetime to learn to walk with him. So again, reach out so we can help you do that. Let's get you into a good local church that teaches the Bible where you can grow alongside of other believers, where you can help them, they can help you. You guys can walk together and serve together and grow together. And, uh, and by all means, please stay in the word of God every day. Read through the Gospels, read through the New Testament, read through the Old Testament. I'd suggest the New Testament first, and then it'll help you understand what the Old Testament was all about, as it ultimately, as Jesus himself said, pointed to him. So that being said, God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day, and we'll pick it up again next time. And I look forward to joining with you again as we go through the Word of God. God bless you.